Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs. So today I want to talk a little bit about the mechanics of the banking system and the relationship between the banking system and the real economy. A couple of ideas that are central to the whole thing that I think are important. The first is there's an accounting identity that total assets equals total liabilities plus shareholder equity. It's true for every company, and it's true for an individual bank. It's true for the banking system. In the case of banks, the assets are loans, the biggest categories being mortgages and commercial and industrial loans and securities, the biggest portion of that being a very highly rated treasury securities and agency mortgage securities. The liability side, for the sake of analysis, it works to say that it's deposits plus shareholder equity. Think, you know, for a dollar of assets, a bank might want to be 45 cents of mortgages, 45 cents of commercial and industrial loans, 10 cents of deposits at the Fed, treasuries, short-dated agencies. So 10% that they consider extremely liquid. On the liability side, let's just say uh, 90 cents of deposits and 10 cents of shareholder equity. And at all times, both sides of that equation will be equal to each other. Next sort of thing that helps in terms of thinking, for most situations, one can think about the banking system as if it were one bank, as if everybody banked in one place. So that's a starting point. The second thing that's important is more or less every legal transaction is settled via a bank account to a bank account. Typically, it's one bank to another bank, but again, from a systemic point of view, think as if it were just from one account at a bank to another account. The next thing to note is, again, at the individual bank level and systemically, a bank has to think about three things. They have to think about default risk, they have to think about interest rate risk, and they have to think about liquidity risk. That is to say, if their depositors want their money back, they have to be able to give it to them. And generally speaking, you know, I think the numbers I threw out in the beginning are reasonably representative and, you know, will work for analytic purposes that, you know, generally speaking, a bank would like a minimum of 10% of their assets to be highly liquid from the accounting identity that, you know, assets equal liabilities plus shareholder equity. I mean, it follows that system-wide to generate a deposit, either something's coming from outside of the banking system or within the banking system to generate a deposit one has to generate a loan. And in fact, every bank uh, generates money 
by making loans. When, when a bank makes a loan, the borrower sets up an account, the account gets credited. Essentially, um, two IOUs have been exchanged. The borrower has given the bank an IOU, that that's the loan. The bank has given the borrower an IOU, that's the deposit. Now, you know, generally speaking, almost always that particular deposit gets spent, which is to say the borrower uses the money for something, but really what that means is, is it gets transferred to a different account. The difference between IOUs that banks generate and IOUs that private individuals might generate is the IOU from a bank is money. Uh, it's more or less universally accepted. It's what businesses pay their employees and vendors with. It's what consumers pay their bills with. Now, to understand the current situation, let's walk through a few things that are happening. Now, the press is reporting, and it is true that customers are withdrawing deposits and putting them in vehicles outside of the banking systems. An individual buying treasuries or an individual taking money out of the bank and giving it to a money market fund and the money market fund buying treasuries or other short-term obligations. To understand what's happening and the, fact, the effect on banks and the economies, we can simplify and let's just say everything is treasuries. So let's take a bank, 45 cents of mortgages, 45 cents of commercial and industrial loans, 10 cents of treasuries, 90 cents of deposits, 10 cents of shareholder equity. And we can even assume that this bank has a perfectly matched book, no interest rate risk and let's say no credit risk. In one sense, the customer has taken 10 cents and put it in a money market fund. The money market fund has taken that 10 cents and bought 10 cents of treasuries from the banking system. Probably not from exactly from the particular bank, but when we say customers are withdrawing from banks in aggregate, and buying money market funds and treasuries, that's what's happening. Now, at one level, one might suppose, all right, it used to be that the bank held the client's money and owned treasuries, and now it's a money market fund. Nothing significant has happened. But from the bank's point of view, now the bank has 45 cents of loans, 45 cents of mortgages, 45 cents of commercial and in industrial loans, 80 cents of deposits, and 10 cents of shareholder equity, assuming that they didn't lose any money on selling their treasuries. The accounting identities all hold. Um, the asset side equals liabilities plus shareholder equity. But now the bank has no liquidity. The bank has no assets that they can turn quickly and into cash if some of those 80 cents worth of depositors want their money back. Important to note that you know the bank hasn't lost any money. 
the bank hasn't done anything wrong, but you know the bank would like to have 10 more cents of deposits with which they could buy 10 cents of very liquid assets. But we've already said that uh, the banking system as a whole is losing their liquid assets. That's what it means for deposits to be withdrawn. And the only way for the banking system to generate a new 10 cents worth of deposits is for the banking system to generate a new loan, a new asset for the new liability. But again, because the banking system is losing liquid assets, the banking system as a whole, the individual bank and the system as a whole doesn't want to make new loans because what an individual bank wants is for another bank to generate a loan and for the borrower to spend it with a customer of their own bank. So customers withdrawing deposits and buying treasury bills, usually through something like a money market fund, drains liquidity from the banking system and the only way for the banking system as a whole to generate a new deposit is to make a new loan. Um, but every individual bank is looking to not do that. A similar thing happens when a loan is extinguished. So like every day, more or less every day, you read about a commercial property being surrendered to the bank. So a couple days ago, Brookfield gave the keys to their lenders on a $160 million loan. Let's walk through what happens here in terms of deposits and bank liquidity. If we assume, as is actually sometimes happening, the bank is able to sell the building that had a $160 million mortgage, say they can sell it for $160 million. The likely transaction, they sell it to a buyer who borrows $80 million and pays $80 million in, in cash. If the purchase is a new $80 million mortgage and $80 million of cash, $80 million of assets and liabilities have shrunken from the banking system. There's now $80 million went from a bank account to the bank in payment for the building. And what used to be a $160 million loan is now an $80 million loan. On the margin, you know, very, very marginally, this helps the bank's liquidity. But it's only on the margin because their assets and liabilities are smaller. The amount of cash that they want to hold is smaller, but it's in a reduction in the amount of liquidity they would like to raise as opposed to an actual um, injection of liquidity. In situations where a loan is extinguished, but a bank doesn't get full recovery, the shrinkage comes from out of shareholder equity and is going to increase the bank's need both for capital and liquidity. A couple things, apart from customers taking money outside of the banking system, two other things have happened that have heightened bank 
liquidity desires. The first and most obvious one is Duran's uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Uh, so this heightened awareness of liquidity needs, it's heightened regulatory scrutiny of liquidity needs, and it's certainly made every banker, you know, if, if they were comfortable, say, with 8% liquidity, they may well be reconsidering that and thinking, oh, it really should be more like 10 or 12. The other thing that's happened is over the last few years, banks have accumulated securities of some maturity, you know, generally not very long, but three, four or five years, which now trade at 85 or 90 cents on the dollar. For most banks, this doesn't affect the regulatory capital. It affects their gap book value. But if they are incented not to sell securities at a loss, if they sell securities at a loss, it won't affect their income statement, won't affect their gap balance sheet, but it will affect their capital for regulatory purposes. So banks are disincented from selling securities at a loss. This means when they bought the securities, say, a year ago, they were part of what the bank considered their liquidity bucket. If depositors wanted their money back, they could sell these, and they were included in things that could meet their liquidity needs. So that's been reduced. And then result is there really is not a bank in the United States that wants to make new loans. They will and they can, but it's not their tactical and strategic priority. It's you know, kind of the equivalent of lending money to your brother-in-law who you don't really like, but he's family and if he absolutely needs to borrow money and you can lend it to him, you may feel for relationship reasons that you need to do it. So I think one can say with a very high degree of confidence that bank lending will decline over the next very intermediate period. Banks will let loans run off. They will shrink. And I think one of the things that people are missing in terms of their market calls and their economic calls is the Fed cutting interest rates will not stop this process. I talked previously about how the Fed raising rates from zero to two and change was economically irrelevant because there was so much in excess reserves. It was the equivalent of a left pocket to right pocket transfer. And now the same thing would be the case slightly in reverse. So if the Fed cuts the funds rate from 475 to 425, the immediate effect on bank liquidity is very, very small. You know, on, on the margin, some securities with some duration that were held at a loss now might be break even and therefore the bank might include them in their picture of liquidity, but tiny, tiny, tiny effect. Essentially, nothing immediately has happened to liquidity. Now, if the system makes more loans, 
paradoxically, that is an improvement in bank liquidity. But the making of more individual loans requires a willing, creditworthy borrower and a willing bank participant. It stretches credulity in my mind to think that a marginal change in the fund rate does anything to stimulate actual borrowing and lending and therefore an actual increase in liquidity. Now, the Federal Reserve is also a bank, but it's a special bank in that it doesn't need to worry about liquidity, its own liquidity. The money you have in your pocket says Federal Reserve note. It doesn't say JP Morgan note or Bank of America note. It says Federal Reserve note. So Federal Reserve doesn't need to worry about liquidity. Until very recently, its balance sheet did not have any long-dated securities, so it did not take interest rate risk, and it didn't do anything but buy treasury bills and maybe some short-dated agencies or uh, things backed by treasury bills. So it didn't take any credit risk. So the Fed can generate liquidity. It does this by, in effect, making a new loan. It does this by buying newly issued treasury bills from the government. The government gets a bank deposit. It spends the money. That money is deposited in a bank, and thereby liquidity is increased. Harking back to the accounting identity I, I mentioned at the beginning, Money enters the system when banks as a whole create assets, and it leaves when banks as a whole reduce assets. In short, because we now know that banks are illiquid, we know that liquidity creation can only come from the Fed. Again, this doesn't mean raising or lowering interest rates that won't have any effect. It means the Fed buying assets. It means the Fed increasing the size of its balance sheet. And I would assert, barring a new financial crisis, the Fed over the next multiple years will be reducing the size of its balance sheet, which means banks will remain illiquid, which means more loans will be paid off than generated. And one can say loan growth and GDP growth are not quite the same thing, but they are very, very closely related. And while, you know, there are lags and so forth, people borrow money for a purpose. And while that purpose may not be immediately exercised, it will show up as GDP over time. You borrow money to renovate your house, you borrow money to expand the business. You don't borrow money that you don't intend to employ in an economic fashion. Historically, I believe that bank lending grows about 6% a year in the absence of bank loan growth. It's very, very difficult to see that there can be GDP growth. I therefore think we're in a recession or about to 
enter a recession. Since I don't see a financial crisis, since I don't see an implosion in the quantity of loans outstanding, I don't see a deep recession. I don't see anything along the lines of the great financial crisis. Again, that being an implosion in credit, but I think a recession is a foregone conclusion. I think it's quite likely, though I'm less certain that credit is very tight than I am that banks are now illiquid, though still solvent. I think the equity markets are very likely to go down. And I think the reason this happens and the mechanism that makes this happen is wealthy people and wealthy institutions will sell stock to fund the things that are no longer being funded by the banking system. Again, with the accounting identities involved, this doesn't have any effect if the buyers of the stock were going to fund the stuff that the banking system isn't funding. But what will happen in practice is institutions such as hedge funds, which will borrow a portion of the money. Therefore, the sale of stock from somebody who owns it unpledged to somebody who's borrowing money actually serves to reliquify the banking system and, and allow banks to step back in to funding economic growth. But in order to induce the hedge funds and so forth to increase their equity holdings, uh, the price has to be attractive enough that they're willing to do it on a levered basis. The thing I think everybody should be paying attention to is the difference between bank CD rates and treasury rates, which now are um, banks are paying for marginal dollars somewhere between 50 basis points and 125 basis points over treasuries, as long as there's a positive spread of that magnitude, it says that the banking system is tight for money. I don't think can be sanguine on economic prospects or the stock market as long as that relationship persists. And I would add further that while the immediate sort of panic concern, whatever you might want to call it, after the Silicon Valley Bank and signature failures. While that has abated, uh, the bank funding relationship hasn't changed. And I think, you know, this is the thing to watch. A cut in the Fed funds rate is not likely to change it. The, really, the only thing that changes is the Fed ceasing to reduce their balance sheet and maybe start to increase it. And that it's a new paradigm because that is not what central banks want to do. In fact, central banks want to avoid that in terms of a strategic move. So when Silicon Valley Bank failed, the Fed increased very slightly what they would lend against already pledgeable assets by banks. They didn't suspend QT 
they didn't offer you know sort of wholesale fed balance sheet growth fed asset purchases and i think one can be very confident that that won't happen except in a financial crisis kind of situation so from the point of view of uh, equities it's very much a uh, heads they win tails you lose the next few years are going to be very different from the decade plus of regular quantitative easing thank you always welcome questions and comments thank you for listening to ask andy if you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.